We're going to be in Luke chapter 13 this morning. Luke 13, if you, uh, if you have a Bible handy, go ahead and turn there. You know, um, last week we talked about Jesus' coming back, that Jesus is going to return, and that we need to be ready for that. And um, in, this, in, in this passage of Scripture, where he's talking about how he's returning and how we need to be ready and how we need to be found faithful when he returns. The faithful servant who is doing his work when he comes back at a time that the servant doesn't know. Um, it's easy to ask, it's easy to think, okay, all right, we need to be ready. I understand that. I, I get the fact that he's coming back. We need to be ready for it. But what does that actually look like? What does that look like in real life? Jesus talks about over the uh, verses following that passage. This is and at the backside of Luke chapter 12. He talks about the fact that he is coming, and he's not coming to bring peace. He's coming to bring division. He talks about the fact that, that, that some will follow him, and some won't follow him. And here's the thing about Jesus. Jesus, even though he's the prince of peace, he doesn't bring peace. And the reason he doesn't bring peace is because of how people deal with him. Some people accept him as Lord and they trust him completely and they give everything to him. And some people don't. Some people deny him. And some people run away from him. And some people refuse to trust him. What's even worse is some people try to straddle the line as if Jesus is a good teacher C.S. Lewis talks about that in Mere Christianity. He says, he says, you can't come to him with that by the claims that he made. Either he is Lord or he is a liar or worse. But you can't say he's a good teacher. He never gives us that option. He didn't intend to. And the whole point that Lewis is making about Christ, and it's the whole point that Christ makes throughout the Gospels, is you've got to make a choice. Now, some will choose rightly and some won't. And that's going to divide. Brother and sister, mother and father, child, grandparents, aunts, uncles, friends, high school, sweet, high school sweethearts, people who know each other and care about each other are often divided on the most central question. What do you do with Jesus? He says, I... I, I I came not to bring everybody join hands and sing kumbaya kind of peace, but I'm going to cause division. He also said, you can look up at the sky and you can tell when it's about to rain. You know when there is about to be a scorching heat, and yet you can't understand the signs of the times. You can read the weather, but you can't read the weather of current events to know that the most important event in human history, the coming of the Messiah, is happening right in front of you and you completely miss it. How can you, how can you not know the most important thing and yet know all the nitpicky details that don't matter? It's why the Pharisees tithe dill and cumin and they miss the weightier matters of the law. It's why we often, and by we, I mean that with a capital M because it's me, how we often miss the big forest focused in on the tiny little needles on one pine tree. How can you not know the time? Being ready means being willing, being attentive, catching the signs, 
seeing what's most important. And then he says, look, if you're being accused and you're on your way to court, settle out of court. Settle with your accuser. Make it right before you get before the judge. Because once you get before the judge, you've got the full weight of the law coming down on you. Companies know this. That's why there's so many out-of-court settlements for lawsuits. Because they know it's going to cost a lot less to talk over the table with that person and make a deal with them than it is to go to court and have somebody give them, give that person multiple millions of dollars for their claim. It's why oftentimes people who are guilty will say, let me make a plea bargain. Let me get a reduced sentence in exchange for me admitting my guilt. You see, when you settle with your accuser beforehand, it goes a lot better for you. When you make things right one-on-one, it goes a lot better. But when you let your pride get in the way and you stand up for yourself and, and who you are and I'm, I'm going to take this, I'm going to fight this all the way, even when you know you're guilty, even when you know you're wrong and you know you deserve punishment, it's only going to be worse. Make it right with that person first. He says the ready person, the one who's ready, is the one who's willing to settle out of court. Now, who are you settling with? You're settling with the God of the universe. You know, when we, when we confess our sins to Christ, we are settling with him. We're admitting our guilt. We're telling him we know we're wrong. We know we're guilty. God, I know I deserve death. But it's only in, it's only in the repentance of sin that we can settle with our accuser. See, part of being ready is being willing to repent. And that's what brings us to Luke chapter 13. So now, in this context of being ready, getting yourself ready for the coming of the Son of Man, Jesus gets interrupted. Wouldn't you know it? He's he's on a roll, man. He is is teaching fire. And somebody interrupts him. And it looks like it's something completely unrelated, but just, just like Luke likes to do, just like Jesus often found how, how those interruptions are not so much interruptions, but they just prove the point. They just drive home what he's saying. This interruption is going to drive home what Jesus is saying. Look with me in Luke chapter 13, and let's read verses 1 through 9 together. If, you are, if you're able to stand, would you stand with me as we read God's word? Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 9. There were some present at the very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Are those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them? You think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you all likewise perish. And he told them this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Pray with me. 
Father, let your words sink deep into us. Help us to hear, to listen, to heed. In Christ's name, amen. Luke, Luke is telling us these things that Jesus teaches and he mentions this interruption. It looks like, um, it looks like something is, is just completely getting in the way of what Jesus is saying, but it's, it's going to line straight in to this idea of being ready, being ready for his return and what it looks like for you to be ready. The uh, verse one, there were some present at that very time. There's no, there's no room for interruption here. This isn't a different teaching thing. This is as he's talking, he gets finished with what he's saying and immediately somebody speaks up. And they told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. We don't know the particular details about this. This is not recorded anywhere else. Josephus is a Jewish historian of the day. He doesn't record anything about it. There's no records in the Roman annals or anything like that 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 tell us about this incident. So we don't know all the details. What we do know is that apparently um, some men were offering sacrifice whether it was a Passover sacrifice or whether it was some kind of minor thing or whether it was, whether it was even in the temple or not, we don't know. But they're Galileans, they're offering a sacrifice. And while they're offering the sacrifice, Pilate orders that they be killed and they're killed in the process of offering the sacrifice. Again, we don't know all the details about the story. I do know um, from some things Josephus tells us that Pilate is pretty rough on the Jews sometimes. Um, there's one particular instance where uh, he took some money that was dedicated to the use of the temple and used it to buy some stuff for Rome. He used it for official Roman purposes. And the crowds were getting mad. And Pilate heard that they were going to demonstrate and protest. So he put guards armed but in civilian clothes in the midst of the crowd. And once they started protesting, he gave them the signal and the guards started beating people and killed quite a few Jews. We do know of incidences like that. So, so it doesn't, it wouldn't surprise me if Pilate had some men executed while they were offering sacrifices. He didn't really seem to care much for Jewish religious custom. But in any, in any stretch of the imagination, you could imagine that somebody being killed while they're offering a sacrifice, that would be a pretty bad way to die. In fact, it would be a way to die that would suggest that you must have been a pretty bad sinner in the first place. I mean, if God has you killed, and remember, God is sovereign. If God in his sovereignty even lets you be killed while you're offering him sacrifices. You got to be pretty bad. I mean, it, you, you've heard the joke that somebody says, uh, don't lie in church or God will strike you down with lightning. Can you imagine if that actually happens? What would you think of that person? What would you think of the last thing they said? You'd be thinking, man, they must have done something really bad. And it was a common misconception. It goes back ancient days. You read in the book of Job this same misconception that if you were suffering, if you were undergoing bad situations in your life, then you must be guilty. You must be punished. This must be God's punishment on you. I mean, after all, God rewards the righteous, doesn't he? I mean, doesn't God put plenty of money in the bank account of people who just have faith? 
Doesn't God just richly reward the people who are living for Him, who are doing everything right? Isn't it all roses and daisies for those who love God? <laughs> and you're laughing. I hope you're laughing because I hope you see how ridiculous that is. And yet, oftentimes we act like that's exactly the case. That person's really going through a hard time. They, I don't know what they did to deserve that. We often act like that suffering is equivalent to God's judgment on someone. And sometimes it is. Sometimes God just outright slaps you in the face because you are a dummy and you need to be slapped in the face. But sometimes God is not slapping you in the face because of what you've done wrong. Sometimes God is putting you through the ringer because of what you're doing right. And sometimes it doesn't have anything to do with that at all. It's just life. We live in a fallen world and bad things happen. Bad things happen. Somebody that tells you that this disease is just the judgment of God on the society, I think they're, they're mistaken in their premise. There is something to be said for disease and, and difficulty and suffering and death as being the results of sin. Absolutely. Death does not come into the world if sin is not first in it. Death is a result of sin. It is the wages of sin. And it's a lousy wage. But that's what you earn when you sin. You earn death. The thing is, though, that every particular suffering, every particular death, in every particular way, is not a judgment directly on that person. Sometimes it might be. Sometimes it isn't. And the fact of the matter is, these guys thought... And I know because of Jesus' response, we'll look at that in a second, but these guys thought, man, those guys must have been really terrible and must have really needed to repent. And it isn't, isn't it easy to do that? To point the finger over there and say, man, those guys are bad. Thank God I'm not one of them. I know that this is the way they thought. I know that they thought that the Galileans that were offering these sacrifices and got killed, uh, they must have deserved it. Because of Jesus' response. Look in verse 2. And he answered them, Do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans just because they suffered in this way? Do you think they're worse than... Notice he says, those Galileans... Do you think that those Galileans were worse than all the other Galileans? Do you see what he's doing here? He's pointing out and 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 you could call this racism. This is a, this is a form of racism. But... It's this hatred of other people. It's this looking down on other people like, you must be so terrible. And if you're suffering and you're part of this bad group, then you're really bad and God is really punishing you. And the fact of the matter is that that's the way they were thinking because they were seeking self-justification. I want to prove me is good, so you must be bad. And I'm better than you. You need to repent. And the problem is, while that's true, that's half true. You do need to repent. But God knows I do too. And if you're not willing to point the finger at yourself and say, I need to repent, then you're not ready for the Son of Man. They had a misconception. They believed God had to judge men based on their works right here and now. That, that every suffering, that every trial, that every pain that had to be the direct result of God's judgment of their sin. And since they weren't suffering... They must not be sinning. If only they had been better, these folks would argue. They wouldn't have been killed so cruelly. But Jesus answers it 
And man, does he knock him between the eyes on this one. He does it so, so, so strong is this punch that he hits twice with the same punch. Look at verse three. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now, is he saying they're going to die in the exact same way? No, he's saying they're going to die because they are sinners and they need to repent. You see, here's the problem. When I look at your sin and I point out your sin and I just say, you're a sinner, you're a sinner, you're a sinner, and I bind myself to my own sin, I become even more guilty because guess what I tend to see in other people? Yeah. You know the things that I hate worse about my kids are the very traits that I have? (laughs) Carrie could testify to that. The very things that I hate worse in others are often the biggest problems I have myself. And if we're not careful, it's all of us that do that. Every single one of us. Their flaw was in their self-justification. They thought others deserve judgment, but they failed to realize that they deserve judgment too. They saw the sins and faults of those Galileans. Or maybe it would be those Samaritans or those lame people or those others, whatever that other group is. And they missed their own sins and faults. They missed what was going on in the mirror and they refused to repent from that. They stood condemned, yet they were self-righteous to the point they were blind to their own problems. I love how Jesus just outright says it. He doesn't say, repent or you'll be sorry. It's not a vague threat. It's not, repent so that I don't have to punish you. It's not, please repent. Please, just just please, just, just this one time. It's repent or die. Repent or perish. It's that clear, that simple of a choice. Either you repent of your sins or you're going to get what you deserve. Period. Settle with your accuser. Repent. Because the judgment that's to come is what you deserve. And it's not just those folks over there. It was, it was people that lived in Jerusalem too. Verse four. He gives another example or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell. We don't know much about this either. Apparently there's a tower fell on some folks and 18 people died. A natural disaster. Do you think they were worse offenders, Jesus asked, than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? He's, he's turned the, the, the racism uh, against those Galileans and he's turned it on its head because now he's talking about residents of their own hometown. Don't, 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 do you think they were worse than all the other sinners in Jerusalem? This is a, this is a nice way of saying, don't you know? Don't you know all people need to repent? Psalm 53, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They've all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is not one who does good. Not even one. Paul quotes that psalm and he quotes several other psalms and a couple of other passages from the Old Testament. And then he concludes this, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified. You know why? Because all the law can do is show you your problems. All it can do is show you your sin. You are trying to be justified in a law that condemns you because it shows how much of a sinner you are. How much more true is that of those who know God's law and who don't do it? How much true is it? 
those who are closest to God, who know him well, who have heard his voice and yet still refuse to obey. How much more are we who claim to know him and yet deny him by our fruitless works of the flesh? I I use the word fruitless because Jesus uses a parable to drive the point home. As if that wasn't enough, he gives us the parable of a fruitless fig tree. Verses 6 through 9. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard and he came seeking fruit on it and he found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now, I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? So let's look at things from the farmer's perspective. He's got this vineyard. I'm sure it's growing quite well. He's given this tree plenty of time to grow. He's got a professional fine dresser that's looking after it. He's, he's, he's got someone who is an expert to make sure that it has every possible advantage. It's got good ground. It's got good fertilizer. It's got plenty of sun and water. He's doing everything he can to make sure that things are in the right condition for this fig tree to bear fruit. He's given it plenty of time. Three years is enough time for fruit to start growing on this tree. And yet, year after year, he comes out and looks, and there's none. Okay, first year, okay, all right, still acclimating, may not produce in the first year. Second year, there should be some form of fruit. May not be edible, but there should be something there that shows that this tree is healthy and producing fruit. Nothing's there in the second year. He comes out the third year. By now, there definitely should be fruit, and there's nothing there. He turns to the vine dresser. He says, I'm done. I'm, I'm done wasting my time on this. Cut it down. Let's use this ground for something that will produce fruit. Can you understand? Can you, can you see the frustration in the farmer's face when he's still not getting fruit out of this tree? Maybe, maybe you hear the frustration in one who plants, one who works, waters, tends, cares for, and the tree is still fruitless. If it wasn't for the vine dresser's objection, that tree gets cut down. He says in verse 8, and he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also. Give me one year. Give me one more year. I'm going to dig around it. I'm going to put down manure. I'm going to give it every last chance. And if it produces fruit next year, great. But if not, then you can cut it down. Give me, give me one more chance. You see, a fig tree that doesn't bear figs is worthless. might be strong, tall, nice leaves, pretty good shade. But that's not the purpose of this tree. The purpose of a fig tree is to make figs, right? For an oak tree, yes, it's okay for it to have good shade. But for a fig tree, you're not looking for shade. You're looking for figs. Its purpose is to bear fruit. Your purpose is to bear fruit. Jesus said in John 15, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Paul, talking to the Colossian church, is praying for them. And he says, so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, 
fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in his will in the knowledge of God. Jeremiah, it's not just New Testament, even in the Old Testament. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. He says it twice, so you'll know it's important. He's like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when the heat comes, for its leaves remain green, and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. When we trust in the Lord, when we're doing the works of righteousness, when we're obedient to Him and His commands, we will bear fruit. We show the signs of being ready for the Son of Man to come when we are bearing the fruit in keeping with righteousness. When we're following Him, when we're trusting Him, when we're obedient to Him, that's what shows that we are ready for His return. When we don't, when we're trusting in our own righteousness, which Isaiah reminds us is like filthy rags, when we are doing the works of sin, when we are disobeying His commands and seeking to follow our own ways, fulfill our own desires, we're fruitless and we're destined for destruction. We're the fruitless fig tree, threatened with being chopped down and thrown in the fire. We are the people of God who are really condemned by the very sins we decry in others when we're blinded to just how bad we are. We must repent of our fruitlessness before the judgment of God renders us fruitless for all eternity. Check your branches. Are you bearing fruit? You know, I've never seen a good, healthy tree, fruit tree. I've never seen it struggling to pop out fruit. We have blueberry bushes. It seems like overnight it goes from leaves to lots of green blueberries. It's out of nowhere. It's Bearing fruit is the natural byproduct of being healthy. And it's the same spiritually. How's your walk with God? If you find that you're fruitless, check your faith. Make sure that you are really trusting in Christ and not in your own works. Because no matter how hard you try, you can't bust out an apple on your elbow. I've got a little Adam's apple in my throat, but that's about the only apple I've been able to produce. But when you're trusting in Christ and you're doing His work and you're, you're, you're building a relationship with Him, you're spending time with Him, you're reading His Word, you're praying, you're allowing Him to show you what to do, allowing Him to guide your footsteps. When you're growing in the Christian life, you will bear fruit. When you're not, when you're not making that effort, when you're not living for Him, you need to repent. Jesus tells us to get ready. He's coming back. Check your heart. Get yourself ready. Make sure you're bearing fruit for Him. Let me pray for you. Father, I pray that all of us would take to heart the need to repent. We all have areas of our lives where we maybe we, we haven't relinquished control because it's too ugly to look in that closet. There, there's the skeletons in there. Just The smell is terrible. We can smell it walking by the room. We, we, we know that it's bad in there, but we're just, we just don't want to deal with it. Or maybe we don't even realize what's festering because we never examine ourselves deep enough. We try to hide it with busyness and, and all kinds of great activities, but God, you know it's there. Lord, maybe, maybe we've been hearing your word and maybe we've been pointing the finger at others and saying, look how bad they are. Look how bad they are. They need to repent. They need to repent. And we've never looked in the mirror and said, I need to repent. 
Father, I pray that we would be ready for your return, that we would examine ourselves and make sure that we are ready. Make sure that we have repented of our sins and have trusted you to forgive us, to cleanse us. Father, I pray, pray that we would do the work, work that we need to do to bring you glory. I pray that we would not be content with pretending, with justifying ourselves, with having great leaves and no fruit. Father, help us honor you with our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.